I'll invite you to remain standing for our scripture reading. We'll read from the book of Philippians chapter 2. Let's read God's good word together. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. years ago when I was in college, it's actually a few, it was, it's more than, than I like to think. I did the math recently. It's kind of depressing. But, but when I was in college, which may or may not have been a while ago, a friend and I decided to go to Taco Bueno, as one does. And, uh, and so I, I was driving and uh, we drove just a couple of blocks and pulled into the parking lot. We went inside and got our food. And then we walked out and we noticed that my tire was completely flat. And not just a little bit, which also makes me think it probably didn't completely deflate during the short amount of time that we were in Taco Bueno. Anyway, as I think back, I don't feel great about my attentiveness at 19 years old. But um, in any case, the tire was flat, and so I needed to change it. But this car was relatively new to me. I had a Honda Accord, and uh, I had never changed a, a tire in that car. And, and before that, I had a pickup, a full-size pickup. And, and so, you know, in that car, I had a full-size spare. And, you know, whenever you're used to that and then you pull out the donut, it's just not the same. You know, you just, I don't know. It's just, I didn't feel like quite as much of a man with it, putting a donut on. But in any case, and I also didn't know that this, the tools were different they were smaller, and so they, that's what I have in, in my car now. That's actually what, the, what a 2000 Honda Accord spare kit looks like, and, and so they're just these little tiny tools, and it's like, what am I supposed to do with these? Like, this is, looks like a bad Halloween costume. I'm a robber. Like, open up, or else I don't, I'll use this hook to try to... Anyway, I don't know, but I couldn't, and so I was trying to figure out how do I use this to change a tire. And so we got the jack and put it under my car. And then the, the little bar with the hook, I should have looked up what those are called. I don't, but uh, so, so I put that into the jack, but I couldn't figure out, like, how do you turn this? And so I was just like kind of pulling it around and trying to turn it. And the jack was moving and, and not staying under the car. It, it was not a good situation. I did not look very dignified as I was doing this. And so as, as I was struggling and my friend was watching, I'm like, I don't know. And uh, this guy walked out and he's like, you guys need some help. I don't think it was a question. It was pretty self-evident. And so, uh, and, and you, know, you know what it's like whenever you're helping someone, but they're way more competent than you, 
and you're not actually helping, like they're tolerating you. So that's kind of what we did, and he basically changed the tire for me. And, uh, and he finished up, or we're saying thank you, you know, we appreciate it so much. He's like, yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Just don't tell your parents that a couple of college boys needed someone who barely finished high school to change the tire for them. It's like, okay, thank you. That, that is true. I don't know if I told my parents or not, but, but I remember that. And uh, this was someone who had a different background than I did, a different set of experiences, and, and who knew something that I did not. I did not know how to do that. I know how to change a tire now. Actually, if you get a, a new-to-you car, it's great to look at the spare tire gear to make sure you actually know how to use it. But, but he taught me something that I didn't know. I had something to learn from someone who thought differently, who had different experiences. Do you know that you can actually learn something from people who think differently than you? You can actually learn something from people who have a different background than you? And this one, all right, stay, don't walk out whenever I say this. You can actually learn from someone who thinks different politically than you do? I know. You're shocked. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. I'll see if I can convince you. But, but we're in the midst of a sermon series. We're wrapping it up today. It's called A More Perfect Union. And, and that's what we're talking about. How can we form a more perfect union together? And, and Pastor Mark took us back to the beginning of the church. We looked at the history of the early church starting in Acts chapter 2. And, uh, and what was compelling about the early Christians, it wasn't what they believed. It wasn't their stated beliefs. It was how they behaved. That's what made an impact on people. People weren't like, well, you make a pretty strong argument for the existence of God and then that this Jesus of Nazareth guy was the son of God and, and that through his atoning, you know, what? that's not what was going on. They're like, these people live differently. They take care of each other. They take care of vulnerable people. They even take infants in, into their community that aren't theirs, that were just left to die. They, they live differently. And even whenever the government is persecuting them, they still don't give up their faith. And something about that was compelling, and people wanted to be a part of that. It wasn't their arguments. It was the way that they lived. And, and we can do that today, too. We're not to convince people by our arguments. They'll be convinced by our way of life. And so that's what we've been looking at. And as we discussed, many of us, most of us, if you went to school here um, in the United States, you learned the Pledge of Allegiance. You probably, like I did, said it every day growing up. And, and you know that, uh, that what we say is that we're one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. But every day we have that reminder that it's one nation under God. And, and the order of that is really important because I, I love my country. I'm so thankful that I live in a place where, where I, can, I have a right to vote, where I can have a say in the way that I'm governed. But I also recognize that, that whenever I die, the person who greets me is not going to be Abraham Lincoln, right? I mean, maybe he's a greeter that day in heaven, but, but that's, that's not ultimately who I answer to. I, I'm a citizen of the United States. I'm thankful and I'm proud of that. But ultimately, I'm a citizen of heaven, and that takes precedence. And, and the order of that is really important. And whenever we flip that, it gets really bad. Whenever we see that getting flipped nation before God, I mean, that's really what we see in, uh, in, in Germany in the 1930s and 40s. Whenever we get that flipped, it's dangerous. And so we remember we're one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. And the way that, that we are indivisible is that we do have liberty and justice for all. Because if we don't have that, we're divided already. And so that's what we're looking at. And whenever, whenever we're looking at the state of our nation, whenever we're looking at the state of really the church, the number one enemy of the church and the nation is division. Is division. We can't do the things that we're supposed to do if we're divided. We, can't, we as a church can't fulfill the calling of Christ if we're divided, if we're too focused on our disagreements. And so this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be what? Ruined. 
Not that it will function at a less than peak optimization. Not that it will be slightly less efficient. It'll be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If we're divided, we can't do the things that God asks us to. As a nation, we can't function. We, we can't provide liberty and justice for all in the best way if we're divided. We need to be united. And that feels like a pipe dream right now, right? Like, you know, you've seen the polls. You saw what happened on election night and how divided we are and, and how close so many of the races are. I mean, it seems like we're, we're more divided than ever. And, uh, and that's true. We, we are divided. Um, and we're never going to see things in exactly the same way, right? We're, we're all different people. We have different experiences. We think differently. As Miss Megan said, life would be pretty boring if everyone thought the same thing as everybody else. And, and so disagreement's going to be unavoidable, right? I mean, we're going to disagree about things. That's part of being human and living with other humans. But division is a choice. We're going to disagree, but whether or not we divide over that is our choice. That's a choice we have to make. And if we want to live in a relationship with other people, it's a choice we have to make again and again and again, that we're going to stay united. We're going to stay in relationship. And so that's the choice that we have to make. And as we're seeking to live that out, as we're seeking to live united with others, as Jesus followers, we don't withdraw. We don't seek to control everybody else, but we faithfully represent the values of Jesus. We live, we represent them to the world. We live them out. And as we do that, we seek to live in a way that is compelling to others. And so that's where we've been over the last few weeks. Today, we're going to look at just the way that we talk to people we disagree with. How do I relate to people who see things differently? Because if we look at the political discourse, we see them as enemies, right? And so that's the question that we're going to think about. Who is my enemy? In a divided culture, we often see our political opponents as enemies who represent evil. Not just people we disagree with, not just opponents who are well-meaning, but often the way that it plays out is we see them as evil. You've seen this, I mean, every election that I can think of, if this party takes control of Congress or if this party takes the White House, what's going to happen? It'll be a disaster. It'll be awful. It's the worst thing that you can imagine. And I don't know, I guess I could do the math, but I've lived through a lot of worse things that you can imagine so far. And somehow we're still standing. But that's the kind of rhetoric that we use. There are enemies, they're evil, and they can't be allowed to take power. It'll be the worst thing that could happen. And uh, I love the way that, that Rowan Williams puts it. He's the former Archbishop of Canterbury, but he says, a great deal of our politics, our ecclesiastical life, that's a fancy way of saying church life, and often our personal life as well is dominated by the assumption that everything would be all right if only some people would go away, right? If they, if they could just move, wouldn't that be so much better? I mean, you've heard this after elections, right? If they would just get out of our country, if they would just get out of our state, if they would just get out of our family, everything would be good, right? If they would just go away, we would be fine. Listen, if you think about yourself being a part of the people who should just go away, that doesn't feel great, does it? But that's the way we talk about each other. And whenever our opponents are evil, they become an existential threat, right? I mean, that's the way that we talk. It, it is a threat to our very existence if they win, if they have a say. And so they have to go away. And one of the things that I think is most lamentable about the current state of affairs is that as a culture, we've made a virtue of contempt. We've made a virtue of contempt. As I think about that, you know, I've got two daughters and as I'm raising them, and maybe if you've got kids or you have influence over children in your family, and you think about that, does anyone think like, whenever these kids grow up, I really want them to be contemptuous. I want them really to know how to hate well. Does anyone, like, does anyone think that? Let's talk, but I don't think so. I mean, none of us want that. 
And yet, if you see the way that we talk about people in politics, it looks like we actually like that, right? I mean, it's who can, who can do the best job on, on Twitter, whatever your favorite uh, social media of choice is, who can slam the other side the best, right? Who can publicly shame them in the most profound and degrading way? I mean, that's the things, those are the kind of things that we celebrate. And a lot of us lament that, you know, that campaigning is so negative. The problem with that is that negative campaigning, it works, right? I mean, it works because people hear the things and they get mad about them and they get motivated. And, uh, you know, one of the questions that I try to ask myself whenever I, you know, you've been there, you feel your blood pressure rising whenever you hear certain things or when you see certain things. And, and one of the things I try to ask myself, am, am I the kind of person that this works on? Am I that kind of person? Because if it stops working, people will stop doing it. We've got to stop acting in a way where we're, we're encouraging people to have contempt for others, to act with contempt, to speak evil about other people. Because no one thinks that's a virtue, Right? No one thinks that's a good thing. Uh, I'll give you a hint. That's not one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? It's not. And yet that's the way, unfortunately, too much of our, the way that we talk about politics happens. It's full of contempt. And, and the thing is, you know, as badly as we talk about people who disagree with us, we all have blind spots, but our biases make it difficult for us to see them, right? I mean, we all have biases. I mean, none of us can, I don't, I mean, if you just think about the way that you can see, I can't see what's behind me right now. There are things that I just can't see by virtue of who I am, the way that I've grown up, where I live, all of those things. And, and we know that, but we forget about it. And, and so, you know, you think about this, we, we have this great thing called confirmation bias. And it's so great whenever it's working for you. Like, it makes me feel like I'm right all the time. Like, it doesn't matter what the evidence is. I know what the conclusion is. I'm right. And so I just see that. I'm like, yep, that confirms I was right all along. And so maybe you've seen this, I think about different, um, different, when different folks have been in the presidency and, and the economy is going well. If it's, if it's an opponent, right, if the economy is going well, it's well, the economy is cyclical. Sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. The president actually has very little control over how the economy is doing. But, but if it's going badly in its opponent, right, um, clearly it is their policies that has caused this. We have to get them out as soon as possible, right? I mean, it's confirmation bias, and uh, you can see this in, in so many kinds of different ways. It plays out. It's not just in politics, right? I mean, it's confirmation bias. Oh, yeah, they cut me off. They're a bad person. I knew it all along. That, uh, that just confirms it. I was having a bad day when I cut somebody off. That Obviously, you've got to give me some grace. But that's how it goes. And, and you all know this. But none of us has a monopoly on truth, right? None of us knows the whole truth. And, and so we remember that, that whenever we disagree with people, I'm only seeing part of the picture at best. And, and so I need to be humble whenever I'm, whenever I'm dealing with those disagreements. You know, I may see things differently, but before I condemn you, I need to recognize you might be seeing something that I'm not. And uh, I love the way that Andy Stanley puts it. He says, God loves you in spite of your misinformed, experience-based, evolving views. You know, isn't it great that Andy Stanley can tell me I'm misinformed and I feel good about it? I mean... But, but all of us recognize that. I mean, you probably don't think the same way that you do about everything that you thought 10 or 20 years ago, right? Is that a bad thing? No. It's called growth. And ideally, we're all doing it. Ideally, we change our minds about things as we grow and as we learn more. And, and so we recognize, I, I don't know everything. I have blind spots. I have biases that make it hard for me to see some things. And that's okay. That's just part of being human. But whenever we pe- perceive the other side as our enemies... There's no way we can work together. You can't work with your enemy. You've got to eliminate them. That's what you do with an enemy. And seeing them in that way alienates them, right? 
I mean, let's, let's have those neighbors over that just really never say anything nice to us. Is that a conversation you have? Like, no, no one wants to hang out with their enemies. That's, that's, they're an enemy by definition. That's, uh, that's how we treat them. And so we have to recognize that, that we're, we're in this together and we're not enemies. But even if we were, that still doesn't mean we get to write them off and just say, you know, if, if God would just take them away to somewhere else, doesn't matter where, preferably we're separated by an ocean. That, that's not how it works because what does Jesus say to us about our enemies? Even if they were our enemies, he still says to love them and to pray for them. That's, that's inconvenient, isn't it? But this is what he says. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And we're like, yes, I've heard that. And that is what I do. And Jesus is like, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Not just those who disagree with you, but the people who are actively persecuting you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He tells us to love our enemies, to pray for the people who persecute us. And so even if you find someone who is actually an enemy, that doesn't mean you get to write them off. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for them. And so what we need, if we are going to form a more perfect union, if we're going to move forward, we've got to change the metaphor. Because right now, what is our metaphor for politics? I mean, basically, it's a war. It's a battle against enemies that we have to overcome. But if we believe people are created in God's image, we have to treat them differently. We have to treat them with dignity and respect. And this is what Rowan Williams says about that. He says, I stand before holy ground when I encounter another person, not because they're born with a set of legal rights which can be demanded and enforced, but because there is a dimension of their life I shall never fully see. Dimension where they come forth from the purpose of God into the world with a unique set of capacities and possibilities. Do you ever look at people you don't like, like your political opponents, and say, you know what? They come forth from the purpose of God into the world. No, I don't think about that, but they do. Each person has a part of God's purpose to play. They have unique gifts and capacities, and if we just write them off, then we're all poorer without that. We don't have access to that, but that's what we do. And here's the thing, people created differently than us, like, just like that guy I met in the Taco Bueno parking lot, they can broaden our own limited perspectives. We can actually learn from one another. One of the things that, um, so around this time of year, I think, you know, I should, I should make some gifts for people. And so I've got a lathe and I'll make pens out of, those, out of, out of wood. And, uh, and whenever you do that, you start with this uh, rectangular block of wood and then you've got to make it round because, you know, if you've ever written with a rectangular block of wood, that's not a great writing experience. And, and so you've got these really sharp chisels and, and they have to stay sharp or else it just like breaks. It, it's not a good experience. It doesn't work well if they're not sharp. But you, and so I've got this, this, hon- this honing piece that's, uh, that's diamond, and, and you r- basically grind it against the chisel against this, uh, this diamond. It's like a credit card, essentially. You can't charge it anywhere. But, but, but you have to like put these together, and, and it actually removes material and sharpens it. And because of that, the cutting tool is able to do its job. And, and I think about that, and I think about this, this verse from Proverbs, from Proverbs 27, it says, iron sharpens iron, and one person sharpens the wits 
of another. And, and, you know, you think about this, whenever you take different things and you put them together, they can actually make each other better. Like, like two pieces of metal that you're using, like, like you're using, like sharpening a knife or, or a chisel, it can actually be better through the encounter of those things. And, and, you know, this is something that we've known for a long time. Whenever you have two ideas, if you see, can see beyond just either this side winning or this side winning, we might recognize that the best way is not left or right, but it's actually up. And, and if we hadn't had this conversation, we never would have realized that. By, by bringing our disagreements together, we can actually learn things and come to conclusions that we never would have come to without one another. And I don't want to offend anyone, but did you know you can actually learn something from Republicans? Did you know that you can actually learn something from Democrats? I know. All right, no one get up and leave, but it's possible. We can actually learn something from the people that we disagree with. We can actually make each other better if we're willing to have the conversation if we're willing to stay in a relationship, if instead of seeing diversity of thought as a threat, we can see it as a gift that helps everyone. But it, it means we have to change the way that we think about it. We have to change the way that we think about our politics and our disagreements because our, our dominant metaphor for politics is a battle. Our side, the righteous, against their side, the unrighteous. And whenever you see that, you lose or, or at best you're, you're sent into exile, at worst you die, right? I mean, that's not great. But what if seeing it, instead of seeing disagreement as a battle to be won, we saw it as an opportunity to learn? What if we saw it as an opportunity to learn? If I hear you saying something that I disagree with, what if instead of realizing that I have to convince you of my way of thinking, I actually think that maybe this person has something to teach me? And whenever we change our metaphors, it opens up new possibilities. So this is something that I've learned from Pastor Robert. Whenever he's working with married couples, whenever we get stuck in our marriages, sometimes we, we think about it as a battle, right? We talk about, you know, we're just really in this struggle or, or we get into fights and, and we're trying to get through this or we're really wrestling with this. And what he tells them is basically, don't use any metaphors that have to do with battle. But, and, and the one that he, he suggests finding a new metaphor and the one that he often suggests is a dance, and so instead of thinking this, of this as a fight, instead of thinking of it as a struggle that one of us has to win, we think of ourselves as being in a dance, and right now we're out of step. And, and so now it's not me trying to overcome you or you trying to overcome me, but instead we're working together to get back into step so that we can dance, so we can keep dancing. Whenever we change the metaphor, it changes the way we think about things, and it opens up new possibilities. And I wonder in our politics, if we change the metaphor, if we're not locked in battle anymore, if that might open up new possibilities. I think kind of of like kids sitting, sitting around a big Lego set, you know, and like trying, they're competing visions of what should be built. And, and everyone wants to build something. No one wants to like destroy. I mean, okay, there is that one kid who just wants to tear everything down, but, but, but accepting that, like they all want to build different things. And as that happens, you know, someone might build a bridge and, and someone else might realize, you know, I never thought of putting a bridge over that creek and, and probably we don't need a suspension bridge because it's only about 12 feet wide, but that's a great idea. And, you know, what if we did this instead and we could actually see it as a constructive process? You have your ideas and I start to think of something that I'd never thought of before and I suggest something new. And instead of competing, we're actually going together. We're actually trying to build a more perfect union together because that's the goal, right? I mean, we're all, try- we're all in this together. And it's not like I succeed and you lose and that somehow works. Either we all succeed or we all don't. And so whenever we stop seeing others as opponents, then we can become partners for the common good. 
for the good of everyone, for the good of all of God's people. And, and here's the thing, you may say, yeah, but I, I want to do that, but the other side does not. And they see me as an enemy, so there's no way. You know what's great news? Andy Stanley says this. He says, if someone considers you their enemy, you're not required to return the favor. Did you know that? Like if somebody hates you, you don't have to hate them back. And uh, as, as Pastor Mark sometimes says, you don't have to attend every argument that you're invited to. That's great news. If it, even we can't control what other people do. At best, we, we have limited control over what we do. But we can choose, that even if you say I'm your enemy, uh, I don't accept, you're not mine. You're not mine. And we can love our neighbors in the midst of, of this system that we find ourselves in, in the midst of a democracy. And so that, that's where we are. We want to work together, but, but it's challenging sometimes because even as we seek to work together, we also recognize that policies and consequences, that policies and, and elections have consequences. And those can be for better and for worse. And uh, some of those have good effects for these people and bad effects for these people. Some of them have good effects for these people and bad effects for those people. And so we recognize that, right? It's not just a like, oh, you know, let's all kumbaya come together and everything will be good. I mean, there are real things that we disagree about and those things do have consequences. And one of the particular challenges to, to our way of government is that majority rule can ignore and even cause the suffering of the minority, and so we recognize that, that just because like 60% of us over here think this is a great idea, that, uh, that we can do harm to the 40% of the people over here. And uh, majority rule doesn't necessarily make that a good thing, right? Might does not make right, as you might have heard. And so there are things that we need to consider. We need to recognize the potential for harm of other people. And so there are times that we need to, to oppose things, and we need to say this is not right, this, is, this will be harmful to people, but we can oppose policies without demonizing people who propose them. We don't have to say, we can say that this is a bad idea without saying this is a bad person, right? We can do that. As we think about this, you know, we recognize that, that there are things that we can do through policy, there are things that, that government can do, and uh, there are also things that, uh, that only... Only humans can do. There are things that only the church can do. And, uh, and we recognize that you can't legislate morality, right? I mean, I can't tell you how to believe. I, I can't change your heart through legislation. And, and so, and, and really, whenever we talk about, you know, what is the role of the government, that's part of what divides us, right? We see different roles for, for what the government is supposed to do. And, and while you can't legislate morality, some issues are rightly the concern of the state, and, and we can disagree about those, but, but we also recognize that there are some things that, that the state has to do. And uh, I love the way that Martin Luther J- King Jr. put it in, in an address at Cornell College. He said, it may be true that morality cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important also. This, so is that like the, the biggest uh, um, understatement you've ever seen? Like, yeah, I think that's probably pretty important. And so we recognize that, that you can't legislate love, right? And, and you shall love your neighbor like you have to. Okay, it's the law. I guess I'm going to love everybody. It doesn't work that way. But we can put laws in place that, that um, make it difficult. I mean, we can't control behavior either, but we can't make it difficult. We can say, like, look, lynching is illegal, and there are going to be serious consequences for this. We can put into place laws that protect people. This is what, how he continues. He says, It may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. And this is what we often say we have to do in society through legislation. We must depend on religion and education to change bad internal attitudes, but we need legislation to control the external effects of those bad internal attitudes. And so we can recognize, you know, there's a lot that, that we can do without having to be part of the political process. 
But there is a role for us to play in that as well. And particularly in a society where we get a say, we need to say that it's important that all people's rights are protected, that all people have the opportunity to have a life where they can thrive. And the really good thing is, you know, we want to be part of that. And uh, sometimes we get our way and sometimes we don't. We don't have to wait for the government to do what's right. You don't have to wait for a certain person to be elected. You don't have to wait for a certain piece of legislation to be passed. I mean, the reason that Dr. King's movement was as powerful as it did was because he didn't wait for the government to get in line. I mean, that's why he had to do what he had to do. And it was through nonviolent resistance that minds were changed and, and that the legislation followed. And as the church, as the people who believe in what Jesus commanded us to do, to love one another, if we live differently, the rest of society will be influenced. Whenever we live in that way, whenever we put that into practice, it makes a difference. And we don't have to wait. That doesn't mean that, that we say it doesn't, they can do whatever they want. We're going to be part of the process, but we don't have to wait. Because our witness of love is the best argument for our beliefs. Whenever we live that out, it makes a better statement than we can just arguing about it. Whenever we actually live out love for one another. And uh, you've heard Pastor Mark quote this, but I think it's so good we need to hear it again. The best criticism of bad is the practice of better. Is the practice of better. Someone criticizing you and tell you how awfully you're doing something is not super helpful, right? Wow, you shamed me so much. I really want to change. Thank you for doing that. Whenever you see someone acting differently, whenever you see the way that they conduct themselves, you think, you know, sometimes you'll think, I don't agree with that person, but there's something about them that maybe I need to consider what they have to say. The way that they live, the way that they interact with other people, there's something about that, and I want to know more. We can actually learn from one another. And whenever we live the way of Christ, it makes a difference. It makes a powerful difference. And so as we try to live that out, I want to give us a few guidelines for living toward a more perfect union as we try to do that in the way that we live our lives. And so the place where we start is we tell the truth. We tell the truth, even when it makes our side look bad. And I know that's not super fun because it's more fun to talk about what the other side did bad. But if we do not police ourselves, like it's just going to continue on the downward spiral that we're already on. We have to be willing to say that, look, yes, my party did that and that was wrong. And acknowledge that if we're going to ever have hope of growing. So we recognize that, that we have to tell the truth. We can't start with just, yeah, but they did this, you know, or just uh, they started it. Did that work for you when you were a kid? He hit me first. Oh, okay. Well then, you know, did you hit him hard enough? Do you want to make sure that you did that? That's not what my mom taught me. And yet that's a lot of what flies. Well, we just have to. We have to lie about this because they're going to lie worse. Like, no, we tell the truth. We tell the truth because it's who we are. And then we put the common good above our personal good. So whenever we're considering who we vote for, whenever we're considering what we're, you know, what we're supporting, we recognize that this doesn't just affect me and mine, but that it affects the people over here as well. And we have to ask, you know, is this something that's just good for me or just people, just good for, for people in my circumstances? Or is it good for everyone? What, what is the greatest good for the greatest number of people? And sometimes that means that life might be a little more inconvenient for me, that it may not be the thing that I would have chosen if I got to choose in a vacuum. But we recognize that the things that we support have an effect on other people. And so if it has a negative effect on others, then I'd be really, really careful about supporting that. And particularly, as Jesus reminds us, on people who are vulnerable. We've got to pay attention to that. And so we put the common good above our personal good. 
This is how Paul puts it. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. We look to the interests of others and not just to our own. And then we put people over policies. If it becomes more about an issue than it does about the people who are right in front of us, the people who it actually affects, then we've really lost our way. And we've really made it all about winning, about getting our way. And so we put people first. Why do we do that? Well, because Jesus told us to. And so somebody asked him, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And he said to them, and you all know this, he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so, and so we prioritize love. And you know, there are a lot of situations in, in politics and society that are complicated. And, uh, you know, we know what we're supposed to believe because we're in this party and they said, yeah, this is the list. And we're like, okay, yes, we've got to check all these boxes. But if we're honest about it, there are a lot of things that we don't know about. There are a lot of things that are, that are difficult. And even if we think we know what's right, sometimes it's difficult to know what do I do about it? How can I make a difference? And, uh, and I think this is really helpful. This is what Andy Stanley says. He says, when you're not sure what to say or do, ask what love requires of you. Ask what love requires of you. And so I'm in this, this difficult situation. I don't know what to do. You know, there's this issue I don't really know what to think of. There's this election and I don't know who to vote for. What do I do? Well, what, ask yourself, what is the most loving thing that I can do? And um, we may not get it right every time, but if that's what we're seeking, if that's the guide that we're following, we're going to get it right more often than not. What does love require of me? And then finally, I think most importantly, we put our hope in Jesus. Our hope isn't in politicians, it's not in governments, it's not in nations. It's not in whether or not this policy is enacted, it's not in whether or not my side wins. I mean, the early Christians were not in political power, right? And they were subjugated people, they were subjects of Rome, their religion was not legal. And yet, they continued to follow Jesus, because their hope was in him, not in anyone else. And uh, even whenever they were losing... They lost well. This is what uh, historian John Dixon says about that. He says, this is what made Christians good, even cheerful losers. That's not really something that we think about, right? Is anyone cheerful whenever they lose? But, but that's what the early Christians were. And what made them that way was the thought that they had already won. Their role was simply to remain true to the way of Christ, seeking to transform the world through prayer, through service, through persuasion, and suffering. And why did they believe that Christ had already won? Because of Easter because they knew that he was crucified and rose for their sake and for the sake of all the world. And so whatever it looked like, whether it looked like their side was winning or losing, they knew who had the victory, and it was Christ. And they had the hope that he would return and would make all things right. And this is the, how the, the apostle John describes it. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And so in the midst of a divided society, in the midst of the political struggles we face, you know, we do our best to make the world a better place, but we know that ultimately it's God's to do, that we can't do this 
And yet God also invites us to be a part of it. God invites us to be a part of changing the world. And together, if we're willing to set aside our differences, if we're willing to work together, we can be part of a world where there are fewer tears to wipe away, where there is less mourning, where there is less pain. We can do that whenever we work together, whenever we are willing to put love over party. We can form a more perfect union. And we can be a part of what Jesus says whenever he says, see, I am making all things new. He invites us to be a part of that. And so the place you're going next is probably for a lot of you Thanksgiving. And so here's some ways I want to invite you to try to live that out with me. These are our action steps for this week. Uh, this one is, uh, is also from last week, but you know, with the holiday coming up, I think we need a reminder, or maybe it's just me. But uh, be a non-anxious presence in the midst of conflict this Thanksgiving. There is probably, unless your family is a lot different than mine, somebody is going to disagree with someone about something, right? And so, uh, so whenever that does that, you can set them straight, you can put them in their place, and you can even shame them in front of the family. Probably not the best idea. Or you can be a non-anxious presence. And you're probably not going to change their mind. I mean, you're not going to change their mind by yelling at them either. But if, just by being a calm, non-anxious presence in the midst of conflict, you can actually change the situation. The situation will be better if you're in it. And so take a breath and be a calm, non-anxious presence this Thanksgiving. And then when someone says something you disagree with, pause. And if your heart rate is accelerating, take a breath, right? I mean, that happens. But take the opportunity to learn. Take the opportunity to learn. And, you know, you might just think of like, okay, I know that Uncle Joe is going to be there and he's going to say something and it's going to be really hard for me to stay calm. And what, you know, what, how might you change that situation? What might you ask and say, you know, that's not, that's not really how I see things. Help me understand how you see that. Help me understand how you came to that conclusion. Or, you know, even if you know that, tell me why that's important to you. Why does that matter? And, you know, at worst, you might understand them better. And uh, at best, that might even give you something to think about. You might see the world differently as a result. And uh, anyway, if nothing else, you can uh, take the heat off of somebody else who's uh, the focus of that conversation. And, and as we go forth, we don't just have to wait. We can actually start working for good in the world. And so put your beliefs into action for the common good. And there's a lot of good to be done through working through official channels, but we can start right now. We don't have to wait. And so if you feel strongly about the state of education, you don't have to wait for, for a certain measure to come before the school board or the state board or whatever it is. You can actually get into the school and, and volunteer. You can donate. You can buy something off of a teacher's Amazon wish list. You can volunteer. There are all kinds of things that you can do to make things better. And that doesn't mean that you're not still part of the process, but you can actually make a difference right now. You can be a part of helping the world look more like the world that God dreams of of a world with fewer tears, with less pain, with less mourning, where people who are different do not have to be divided. More perfect union. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for, for the place that we live, that we live in a country where we have rights, where we have a say in how we're governed. And I thank you that you give us that privilege and ask that you would help us to use that responsibility well, that we would be faithful to you, and that you would remind us that you are our Lord, and that we are yours before we belong to any country. And so help us to live faithfully in the place where we are, 
Help us to live out the love of Christ in everything that we do so that the world might look more like your kingdom. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his sacrificial love that he showed us how to live and that he taught us how to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.